today were verses 28 through 34. So to recap, a few weeks ago we were talking about uh, Christ was speaking of the resurrection. He was uh, debating Sadducees. The Sadducees had come up and, and debated Christ and questioned Him about the resurrection. You remember the Sadducees taught that there was no resurrection, so Christ was setting them straight. And so right on the heels of that is verse 28, and it really is amazing if you think of the life of Christ, because it was this way outside of Jerusalem, but it's doubly so now, it seems like, now that he's in Jerusalem in this section of Mark. He's in Jerusalem, but the, the, the controversy and the debate and the, uh, the people, the ridicule, everything is amplified right now. Everything is, is ticked up quite a notch. And so when you see here the scribes come up in verse 28, okay, the scribes, and this is important as we look at this, especially at the end, because the scribes here, verse 28, the scribes are the experts in the Torah, the experts in the law. They are the ones, they're like the scholars, right? So these are the, 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 the academy guys. These are the guys that if you have any questions about what the Bible teaches, you go to them and what they say is authoritative. All right, so this, and that's very important as we get to the end of this, but the scribes come up right after the Sadducees. So the Sadducees just get done going to Christ, taking Christ to task, for believing in the resurrection. We saw that there's an underbelly of all... There's a lot more going on than just, oh, they don't believe in the resurrection. They want Christ to, to be stumbled or to stumble at the resurrection. They're trying to intentionally antagonize the political strife that's already there, the uprising, the underbelly of revolt that's already in the, in the water. So they're already trying to do that. So right after that, in verse 28, the scribes come up. All right, so let's read this. This is 28, chapter Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well. So he's impressed, right? He's like, okay, all right. So the guy answered this well, because the scribes were Pharisees, so they believed, they also believed in the resurrection. So he's thinking, okay, well, that's, yeah, I mean, he got that right. All right, this country bumpkin from up north, he's uneducated and everything, this hillbilly. He got, he got that question right. And so he says, okay, well, I'm going to put another question to him. He says, Jesus... He asked him, which is the first commandment of all, or which is the greatest commandment? Your translation will probably say that. Which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, or the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this is not a controversial answer. That's important, okay? So most of, most of the time, when they ask Jesus a question, they're intentionally trying to stump him. They're intentionally trying to antagonize things. And, and he gives an answer that usually does do that. And then he doubles down on that answer, okay? But here, he actually, the answer that he, that he gives is not controversial. This is a central tenet of Judaism, of all Jews. And this is something like, okay, for... For, for Presbyterians or for Reformed Baptists, anybody in the Reformed world, it would be something like, okay, what is the chief end of man? Well, everybody knows that, right? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Everybody knows that. That's not controversial. So that's kind of like what this is, okay? This is the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, right? So he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus gives the proper response. They used to recite this every morning and every evening. So they're, they're catechizing this, the value of repetition, is there. There's the liturgy. That's important, right? So they say, they're saying this all the time. So this is very non-controversial. 
But here's the thing, okay? When we look at this, I do want to break this down a little bit. When you, Because I think it's easy just to kind of go through the motion here. We've heard it before. Yeah, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then we move on, right? But what does this actually mean? Because that is the important part here as far as how we're going to unpack this. Okay, so first of all, why is it? Now think of this, okay? We all know, I mean, it's, we, you know, it's the, it's the, the church thing is to say, okay, yes, we, you're supposed to love God. We all know that. But actually, if we just pause and actually think, right? Just pause a moment and ask yourself, okay, what are some reasons why we're, now notice it's a commandment. That's very important. It's not a, it's not like, hey, you know, it's, it's, it's in your best interest or, you know, there's an option here for you. You know, you, it's something that, that you're, it's preferred that you love God. He says this is the greatest commandment there is. The greatest commandment. There's no other, I mean, there's, there's a lot of commandments, right? This is the greatest. Now ask yourself this. What is it about God that obligates us to love Him? Because usually you don't think of love and obligation in the same category, right? Love and a commandment in the same category. So what is it about God that obligates us to love Him, that commands us to love Him? So if you were just to you know, take a moment and just think about that, what would you say? What would your answer be? Why are we required, obligated, commanded to love God? Now again, okay, look, in church, we, all, we would all, if, I, you know, if, if we had a poll, hey, do you think this is true? We would all say, of course it's true. We'd raise our, whatever it is, raise our hand, put yes in the box. We would all say that. But here's what's amazing about this. It's not just church people that are commanded, obligated, required to love God. It's everybody in the entire universe. Now, it's and not only just every person, it's every animal, it's everything. You know, assuming, now we know that dogs necessarily, they, they can't necessarily worship God or love God like we do, but every single creature is under the dominion of God. And the question is, why? That's a very important question. Why? Well, first of all, I'll give you from Revelation chapter 4. Because God is the creator. Everything comes from Him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And you would think, well, it's because He saved us. And that is true. That's another reason, for sure. But even if He had never saved us, ask yourself this, if God had never saved us, would it still be a commandment for us to love God? Even if He had never saved us. Even if we knew... That, hey, we are, when we die because of our sin, we are rightfully going to go to hell because God is just, He's righteous, He's good, and we've sinned against Him. Am I still obligated to love God? Absolutely, right? God doesn't throw people in hell because He's unjust. He throws people in hell because He's just. So if I knew, like, hey, at the end of this life, I'm going to hell. I know I'm going to hell. You know, most of the time people say, well, because I'm going to hell, I'm just going to go and do whatever I want. In reality, it's like, even if I knew I was going to go to hell, even if there was no gospel, praise God, there is, even if there was no salvation, I'm still duty-bound, obligated to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Look what it says. This is Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were made. 
We are tenants here. We live in God's universe. We live on God's land. We are under his rules, under his morality. That's why you can't make up your own morality, your own rules, your own gender. You can't change. These things are governed by God. Now, people don't like that, right? I didn't like that before I was in Christ. I mean, I wanted to be God. What, what do you mean God has certain obligations on me that I have to love? I don't love God. What do you mean I can't change my gender? What do you mean I can't murder my baby? What do you mean I can't sleep with my girlfriend, right? I mean, who does God think he is? Of course, you don't like that, but the problem is, is that I'm not God. <laughs> the unbeliever is not God. God is God, and God has given us obligations and requirements, but number one, it's because he's the creator. Everything flows from him. Number two, though, is because of who he is, his, his attributes, He's unique. There's none like Him. He's holy. When we say God is holy, it means He's different. He's set apart. He's not, you know, a lot of times people think of, of, of religion and God as, as almost like a salad bar. You know, it's like, hey, just whatever. Look, that's cool you're a Christian, right? That's cool you believe in that God, but I happen to be a, a, a Muslim, or I happen to be a... We, we had Mormons over the other night. I happen to be a Mormon that believes in, you know, millions of gods, that you can become your own God. And that's cool if you you know that's cool if you don't believe that, but this is what I and most people operate in that way, right? But it's like, wait a minute. At the end of the day, the point is, is this okay? Because of who God is, because of His nature, because because He is the fountain of beauty, He's the fountain of truth, He's the fountain of holiness. It's important. It's critical that we love and worship the right the right being. And so when it comes to who God is, and then lastly, the gospel. Not lastly in the sense of the most least important thing, but, but if, in other words, like even if those two things don't, you know, don't, you're like, I don't know about that. The gospel alone should be enough. That God took on flesh to come to rescue wicked rebels, to rescue sinners from their sin. Sinners that, like I mentioned, deserved hell on their way to hell. Well, what does God do to intervene? God himself comes down to earth and intervenes by taking the punishment in our place on the cross so that the wrath of God falls upon Christ instead of us, so that the curse of God falls upon Jesus instead of us. This is the point. So even if all, you know, all the other reasons were, were not sufficient enough, and they are, because even Romans 1 says you know, people without the gospel, even if they've never heard about Jesus, it says they're still without excuse. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. And as our brother mentioned, Jacob mentioned, you know, people, how often do we hear, well, yeah, but, you know, people in, what about these, these country people in, in Africa? I mean, they, they don't really go to hell, do they? If they've never heard the gospel before, absolutely they go to hell. Why? Because they've had enough evidence of who God is, but in the sense, here's the thing, they're still in rebellion, just like all of us. They're in rebellion against this God. And so the fact that the gospel goes forth, this is the context, by the way, of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. You know, the, and even the law. I mean, go to the law. I know we, we recite the law. If you go to Exodus 20, though, and I know I've said this when we go through the law sometimes, but Exodus 20, how does Exodus 20 begin? That's the law, the Ten Commandments. How do, who are the Ten Commandments first given to? Rebels? Well, technically, yeah, but God's people. You know, there's what it says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I saved you. I rescued you. I delivered you out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Therefore, you shall not make for yourself. So when you're talking about the Shema, it is primarily for God's people. 
as a response to God's grace that He's given us. See that? Because when it is... Okay, now let's look through this, okay? When the Bible calls us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know, does that mean we have like four different categories? You know, we're, we're, we're part heart, and we're part soul, we're part mind. And this is... That's not what this is talking about a total response to God. All right? Total complete response to God. Now, this is what Calvin says, our life will not be regulated right until the love of God fills all our senses. And I want to talk about this because this is Matthew Henry, where love of God is the commanding principle, there's a right disposition to every other duty. Augustine says this, love God and do what you like. Think of that. Love God and do whatever you want. Right? You're like, awesome, right? No, think about that. If you truly love God, this is the thing with the Roman Catholics. When you're talking to the Roman Catholics, they're like, wait a minute. You're telling me you're, if you're telling me you're saved, then, then, and you know that, and you have assurance of that, then why wouldn't you go out and party and get drunk and sleep with all the women? Like, why wouldn't you do that? Well, because I love God. <laughs> Because I have the Holy Spirit. What do you mean, why would, I, why would I not do that? So the point here is this, okay? Love is an emotion. Love is a, an emotion. Love is a good thing. Love is, is love. It, can't, it should be a good thing, right? When it's directed towards God. Love, think about what love does. Every single person in the universe is operating according to love. But the question is, what is the object of their love? Okay? So everybody operates according to love. It affects our life, our behavior, the decisions we make, our career choices, marriages, relations, how we raise our children or don't raise our children, our free time, our money, our recreation. Is it not everything we do? Is it not dominated by love, directed by love? What we love motivates us, dominates us, governs us. And this is the point of the Shema. This is why God has to be the center of that love, of our life. Okay? Now, if that's the case, because in, in what you love most will, will, you know, think of this, all right? What you love most, now what do you love, let's just pause here. What do you love most in life? What do you love most in life? And probably what's going through your head is your children, you know, your husband, your wife, and those are good. Of course they're good things, right? But go deeper than that. Like really, what drives your life? What controls your life? You know, reputation, money, lust, pleasure, like these things so often drive us, right? That's not a good thing, obviously, but that is what happens. If we're honest, if we're examining ourselves honestly, we can say, okay, I'm looking at this, and the question is, do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Yes, but no. Is that right? Yes, but no. I don't. I can't say that because what it's talking about is, again, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The totality of your life, the totality of your being, every fabric, every fiber, every, everything about you directed towards God and love for God. So we say, well, yeah, I do that, but I, I don't do that. I don't, right? I mean, if we're honest, if we're examining ourselves accurately, honestly, now, we want to. I'm sure if you're in Christ, you want to. But we don't. That's a problem, is it not? If this is the greatest commandment, but we don't do this, is that not a pretty significant situation that we're in now? That's called the great dilemma. That's a dilemma. Wait a minute. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
You know, you go to the person, they say, everybody thinks they're a good person, you know. Yeah, but do you, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. That's the greatest commandment. So how can you say you're a good person, right? And so this is the dilemma. Now, here's the beauty of this. Because as you're looking at this, and by the way, what's the second? I mean, let's not stop there. What else does he say? Mark chapter 12. I mean, if that's not, because this is all going to come full circle. If that's not hard enough, the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right? Now, that's the one everyone loves. Everyone loves, hey, I, I'm, I'm just loving my neighbor. Yeah, but are you loving God? Is it operating? Is it, is it an extension of your love for God, how you treat your neighbor, how you love your neighbor? You know, if you're just out, I was at Texas Tech three, it's towards the end of last semester, and they're out there, uh, a group out there had a table and everything, and they're, they're saying, yeah, we're trying to provide beds for children because we don't want children sleeping on the floor. You know, and you're like, all right, well, that's cool. That's noble. First of all, what's wrong with children sleeping on the floor? Probably toughens them up. Maybe that's, wrong, that's what's wrong with ours. Maybe, maybe we need to sleep on the floor more. Secondly, though, Secondly, what's motivating you to do this? Why are you out here doing this? Well, we want to help the kids. That's great. We do, right? We do too. Christians, we also want to help the kids, right? Not just in the womb, when they come out of the womb, all the way till their death. We want, we love people. But what's motivating that? Well, we love our neighbor. That's great, you know? That's great. I had a, another time at Texas A&M, there was a student talking, and he said he was an atheist, and I said, so, so, and he was telling me, you know, as, as he said something about helping someone out. And I said, well, you know, why, why, why do you do that? And he said, oh, you know, the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I was like, well, but that's a Christian thing. He's like, yeah, but that's what I, that's the, that's what I live by. You're like, yeah. <laughs> but you miss the whole thing. If you're loving your neighbor, but you don't love God, you're not really loving your neighbor. You see that? You've made an idol of man. You've made an idol of your neighbor. And so there's an order here. But the point is, is even when it comes to loving our neighbor, now this is nice because, number one, it avoids mysticism. So we're not called to have this detached love of God away from others. We're not called to have a detached love in the middle of, you know, Africa or Syria or, or New Mexico and white sand somewhere. You set up a tent. You're just out there till the day you die, just, just in awe of who God is. There's, there's the sense in which this detaches ourselves from mysticism in the sense of um, being disconnected from man in the world. That's why vocations are so critical, important. But also, it avoids humanism. It avoids the idea that humanity is without reference to God. And so the question is, then, of course, who is my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, who's, well, who's my neighbor? And we see that question actually asked in Luke chapter 10. Don't worry about going there. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Okay, we'll summarize it. The, the Good Samaritan, there's a, a Jew. He's walking. He gets beat up. A priest goes by. A Levite goes by. Why? Because they don't want to make themselves unclean. They want to remain ceremonial pure, ceremonially pure. Well, the Samaritan comes along, right? And the Samaritan says, oh, he sees this guy. Now, the Samaritan and the Jew, they hate each other. They're not supposed to have any, anything to do with each other. All of a sudden, the Samaritan, he goes by. He sees this man on the side of the road who's been beat up by robbers. What does he do? He says, oh, okay. He dresses his wounds. He takes him to the inn. He covers the expenses at the inn. If there's more expenses, he says, put it on my tab. I'll come back tomorrow and I'll pay for it, right? Jesus says, this is... This, he says something like, you know, who in this story is the neighbor? Who's the, who's the neighbor here? Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the irony, okay? 
When you're talking, there's two aspects of this, okay? Who is my neighbor? Well, it's Christians. It's, it's, it's the people of God. And of course, that's the one, that's, that's the first thing. So, and this, this goes, and this is the beauty of, you know, whether you're an Assemblies of God guy, whether you're a Baptist, whether you're a Presbyterian, whether you're a, a Christian nationalist, or whether you follow G3, or whether you're this, or whether you're a post mill or an ah mill, whether you're a, you know, whatever, rapture dude, whoever you are, okay? We are called as God's body to love each other. But there's a second aspect, and this is more difficult. The first one's even difficult, we all know. But the second one is also, and it shouldn't be difficult. You know, if we weren't right, if we were operating how we should be, it wouldn't be difficult to love our neighbor. It is difficult. There is tribalism, unfortunately. You do see this. You do see bitterness and resentment even in churches, unfortunately, right? But the point is, is ideally, if everything's operating as it should be, you wouldn't. The second thing, though, is this. Who else is our neighbor? What about the person who murders their baby? What about the baby that we don't even know in the womb that's being murdered, right? They're also our neighbors. What about, what about the, uh, the Mormons that came over to our house the other night? They're, yes, they're our neighbors. Doesn't mean they're children of God. Doesn't mean that they're sons or daughters of God. We see that in 1 John. There's a distinction between those who are sons of God and those who are sons of the devil. But they are still my neighbor. Calvin says this, the greatest stranger is our neighbor. The greatest stranger because God has bound all men together for the purpose of assisting each other. So we have that. So let's go back and ask, ask ourselves this, okay? Now that we're looking at this, is it not true that we prove our love to God by how we treat our neighbor? How we respond to our neighbor? That is a demonstration of how we love God. 1 John 4.11 says, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Right? It's a response. If God has done this for us. This is why you have these great parables about forgiveness. You know, look how much God has forgiven you. Who am I to hold a grudge against somebody? Just because, you know, they, they, and it's not to make light of certain things. There's serious atrocities that occur to people by other human beings. And you're like, well, do I have to forgive them? Well, okay, what's the scripture say? Absolutely. Why? Because God has forgiven us, that and some. We rebel against God. We would rip God off His throne if we could at certain seasons in our life because we want to be God, and God's God, and we're not. So we're upset. Right? These are instances. Now, here's the point, though. Okay? And this is why this all goes full circle. Think of this. Okay? Have you ever loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the Puritans, I'll just tell you right now, they would say, absolutely not. The Puritans would say, we need to repent even of our repentance because our repentance is done in vain. It's done with selfish motives. It's done with, with, with selfish heart sins or uh, secret heart sins. So even our repent, even the best thing we do is always tainted with us. Right? That's just good Calvinistic total depravity. But here's the question, and this is the beautiful thing about this. Okay, I believe that we could say, I mean, I, I think there's the argument to say, we have never loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? And yet, and yet, here we are with absolute certainty that we are in God's sight right now. We are right with God. How is that? You know how that is? Because here's the, here's the thing. Okay? The, the Shema, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. We haven't kept it from the time we came out of the womb. We haven't, we haven't kept it. And yet, guess what? Christ is the one who has kept the Shema. He's the only one who has kept the Shema perfectly, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself. The only single person who's ever done that. So here he is telling them, here, here's the Shema. Here's the greatest commandment. And look at the response of this guy. The, the response is great. The, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. Well, it's like, what do you mean, well said, teacher? What else do you expect from this guy? This is Christ. Now, here's the irony. Because the scribe here is, again, in his mind, thinking, I am in the position of authority to respond. And I, in other words, I'm the greater here. And you get 100% on your response. Good job, Jesus, teacher. The scribe is saying that. Well done. Now, here's the irony. Look what Jesus says. Jesus flips the table on this guy. So he says, you've spoken well, for there is one God, and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, and that's exactly right, and that's harder, by the way. You know, he's talking about this is harder than rituals, it's harder than performances, it's harder than sacrifice. You know, it's easy if I sin to bring an ox, slaughter the ox, take some blood, go to the priest, say, hey, that's easy. It's kind of like the Roman Catholics, right? It's easy, you know. I mean, how many of us had really... I remember some party-hard Roman Catholic buddies of ours in high school, man. They would party harder than all of us, but they were very good Catholics. And so every Saturday night... I mean, on Fridays, they wouldn't even eat fish. <laughs> every Saturday night, and if they don't make it Saturday night, usually they didn't, Sundays, they would make sure they're at Mass. Why? To pay for all the sins. They, and that's, okay, look, we, we say, okay, yeah, God, we, we need God's forgiveness for the sins we've committed the past week. But there's no heart change. They know, hey, next week, all right, I'll see you back next week. You know, it's like, hey, go do seven hell marriage. Go, you know, crawl across some glass and you're good to go. And he's like, cool, man. And then once you finish that, what do you do? You go right back to partying. There's no heart change. That's easy. It's easy to just go through the ceremonies, go through the law, go through the rituals. This, though, what Christ is talking about is fun, radically different, a heart change. My heart has to be changed. Don't hear me say just because we, we have never loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't hear me say that that's excusable, right? We know that once you're in Christ, once God saves you, do we not have a heart that loves God? We do have a heart that loves God now that desires God, that seeks after God, that pursues God, that wants God, that does want to, to love our neighbor that wants to treat our neighbor as Christ treats us, we do want that. Just because, look, just because we, I mean, it's like, don't say just, well, just, well I, can't ever, I can't ever achieve it perfectly, therefore I'm not even going to try. Right? No, the, the wonder and the amazement is, is that Christ has done this perfectly. Love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scribe here says, great, great answer, Jesus. That is a superb answer. I'm going to give you 100% on this test. And then Jesus turns the table. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered, now he see, now Jesus sees the scribe answers wisely, right? Now he tells the scribe, and this would be very offensive if you're a prideful man. Jesus tells the scribe, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You can imagine the scribe saying, What do you <laughs> wait a minute? 
What are you talking about? I'm not far from the kingdom of God. Who are you to, like, I'm the one telling you about who's in the kingdom of God, and now you're flipping the table, and you're telling me I'm, he doesn't say you're in the kingdom of God. He says you're not far from the kingdom of God. What is he missing here? I mean, that's the, here's the thing, okay, look. And there's different ways to interpret this. Some people would say there's, you know, maybe he is saying something like that you're in the kingdom in the sense of, you know, kingdom of God is near you. Uh, most, most people would look at this and say, not far means you're not in it yet. And what is missing is loyalty to Jesus. The scribe has the right answers, but the knowledge is not everything, right? You can have all the theology down. You can have all the catechism right, but that's not everything. Do you follow Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you, that's what, that's what the scribe is dealing with here. Okay. Because the scribe, at least as far as we know, he's thinking, okay, I'm still an authority over this man. Christ is saying, no, if you're going to follow me, you have to come under my authority. And how many times do people do that with the Bible, by the way? Still, right? It's like, hey, I'm reading through the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, yeah, I like that. Uh, uh, wait a minute, what? Wait, no homosexuals will enter the kingdom of heaven? Nah, man. No, I don't like that. That can't. How many times do we do that, right? Or little uh, um, cr- uh, critical... Um, Scholars, critical scholars, you know, especially of the uh, the liberal type, you know, they're reading through and they're like, no, nah, there's some mistakes here. That part's okay. This is the this is what Christ. Now he doesn't explicitly say this regarding this man. We don't know if this man this man is doing that, but there's certainly tendencies in this man. You can tell, right? He is an authority over Christ. People do it today. We do it. Let's not pick on the others, the liberals. Okay, how often do we do that? We read through here and it's like, oh, okay. I don't know, man. That's I don't know about that. The uh, you know sacrificing, not gossiping, not you know what, whatever it is. Well, yeah, I know it's in there, but how often do we do that? Every time we sin, we do something like that. Okay. So the point here is this. Here's the point. As we're looking at this, and as Christ goes on, look how Christ finishes up here. You're not far from the kingdom of God, but after that, no one dared question him. So maybe he's finished with all these questionings, with all the the haggling and everybody coming up to him. But here's the point for us, right? Okay, we are called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to the extent that we have not done that, it's not the time to despair over that. It's the time to rejoice that there was one who actually did do that, who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loved his neighbor as himself. And the way to enter into the kingdom is not, I mean, this is amazing. It's the way to enter into the kingdom is not even by following, by loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Imagine that, right? Imagine if the, okay, how can I get to heaven? Well, it's to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, there goes that. What else? This is the beauty of this, right? The fact that Christ has done this so that we, when we follow Christ, we are, in a sense, we are grafted in. We have union with Christ so that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we, though we're filled with sin and plagued by sin, that we would be the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's the beauty of this. In Christ, this has been achieved. In Christ, the Shema has been fulfilled. It's been satisfied. And if you want to see what loving your neighbor is, look to the cross. Is that right? What's the greatest demonstration of someone loving their neighbor in the history of humanity? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he laid down his life for rebels. He laid down his life for 
haters of God. He laid down his life for his neighbors. If you want to see the greatest demonstration of what loving God is, look to the cross. Because Christ went to the cross for humans, yes. But remember in Gethsemane, he also says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Not my will be done, but your will be done. So his entire life was devoted and dedicated to loving God. That's the beauty here. So it takes our mind off of us, puts it on Christ, recognizing He satisfied the Shema, and therefore we can give Him praise and give Him glory. And when we're weak and we realize, man, I have messed this up royally, what do we have? We don't have a Christ that says, well, then that's it. No, no. we have a Christ that says, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, weary and heavy laden. He will give you rest. There's a quote by Augustine. He says, Something like, man, I've, I've, you know, Augustine knew, and we'll finish with this, Augustine knew a lot. He read everything. But there's a great quote, and we'll finish with this. Augustine says, I have read in Plato and Cicero sayings that are wise and very beautiful, but I have never read in either of them, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's what Christ says. That's what the God of the universe says. Come unto Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise You today, Lord. What a glorious God we have, that You're the Creator, that You're the Sustainer of the universe, that all things are held together by the Word of Your power. We thank You that You have called us to love You, and, and You called Adam to love You, and You called Abraham and Moses and everyone who's ever walked on this earth to love You with all their heart soul, mind, and strength, but there's only one man who's ever done so. And we praise you that that man just happens to have done that so that we in him could be saved and rescued and made right with you. Lord, thank you for this. Impress the truth of this upon our hearts more and more each day. Lord, uh, override our sluggishness, override our, 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 um, our stiff hearts, and show us the truth of your word and press that upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you would, I'm going to let.